Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Future Chat. My name is Rob Attrell, and I'm here today with my co-host, Mike Attrell. Every week, we're excited to bring you all the latest and greatest in science and tech news. And since our last episode was all the way back on December 16th, we have a lot to go through. Uh, I should mention, clerical note here, is, is clerical note the right term? It's a little bit more than clerical. Uh, our senior contributor, who is usually here, Nick Maddox, won't be joining us today. In an extremely unfortunate twist, uh, we actually sent Nick out to rescue Mike from the Alberta bear, if you recall from the last episode. Uh, but he contracted a severe case of bear flu, and so he's not going to be joining us for this episode. Uh, Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit about your ordeal of uh, getting attacked by the bear? I heard it actually clawed out your vocal cords. Yeah, it was it was the craziest thing. Like you know, I got up in the morning like normal. I'm making breakfast, oatmeal porridge, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, you know this bear shows up on my door, and you know I'm thinking, okay, well maybe he wants some porridge. He comes in, and instead of just taking the bowl from, he slashes my jugular, oh. and and strips out my vocal cords. So in the meantime, I had to get reconstructive surgery in the you know over the holidays. So I'm thankfully all recovered now, and uh, uh-huh. you know we we got the bear out. We kind of like, dude, that's not cool, and he left. Um, but yeah, you know, I called Nick right away once I was kind of like lying down on the ground bleeding profusely. Sure. He comes over, but then you know he chases the bear away, and we think it's all fine. But yeah, then we hear today that. He came down with this this bear flu that is apparently going around uh, pretty, you know, quite quite widespread around these. Yeah, parts. it's really too bad because, like, as everybody knows, bears love porridge, and it's cold out. Everyone's making porridge for breakfast, yeah. and so the bear just keeps breaking into people's houses. Yeah. It's really an epidemic. Uh, that being said, Nick is expected to make a full recovery. I've been told by our doctors. And uh, you can send your well wishes to NWA Maddox on Twitter, uh, or you can just search for Nick Maddox on Google+, and I'm sure he'd be happy to hear from you. Uh, but yes, we're looking forward to having him back next week, ideally. That being said, Happy New Year. Happy it's New Year to you too, Rob. 2015, yeah. It's, uh, Pretty exciting. I'm glad we made it. It was, yeah, like I said, it's been almost three weeks since we did an episode. And well, it was that it was three weeks since you were after mm-hmm. the unfortunate incident. It's been three weeks since you did a future chat, and so there's really a lot to talk about. There is, yeah. And uh, so, on the note of 2015, I'm sure you've heard the internet is sort of a buzz right now with the fact that uh, the future, as portrayed in the Back to the Future movies, was 2015. 2015 was the future they imagined. It was 30 years forwards, I think. First, they went 30 years back, and then they went 30 years forwards. And there's a lot of futuristic technology in Back to the Future, uh, specifically the second movie. And I just thought thought it would be a fun idea to go through some of that technology and just see where we are in comparison to where 30 years ago thought we would be. And I know you said you're not super familiar with the canon, and so I'll describe the technology in the movie to you and you can we can talk about uh, whether or not we think we've made it to that point yet. And uh, does that sound good? Sounds, works for me. All right. So first, and I think most importantly, everyone thinks of the flying cars in, uh, in Back to the Future. And I'm sure you've seen the DeLorean outfitted with uh, its sort of downwards thrusting tires and enabling it to fly around. Um, I think sort of unequivocally this one, we, we're not there yet. 
the closest we've come, I compared it to the Helicarrier and the Avengers. It's sort of a similar idea, on obviously on a much larger scale, but in reality, we're not. Like, the Marvel Universe has it, but we mm-hmm. still don't have it yet. Um, I think, actually, a lot of the sort of... Uh, roadblocks, so to speak, that are facing flying cars are regulatory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. People have developed pla- or cars that have wings that are able to take off. Um, and as we've seen, we've, we've talked a bit on this on several episodes of the show about drones and sort of some of the problems that they've been having, both PR-wise, technology-wise, and all that. Uh, and there's actually sort of with all this, I heard over Christmas that a lot of people got drones, like a lot of fathers got drones for their sons or got drones for themselves. And there's sort of been a lot of collisions or just sort of general destruction done by these drones. And because they're so small, there's not really a lot of opportunity to regulate them. Uh, and they're pretty cheap, so uh, flying cars are a lot bigger and it's a lot easier to sort of keep them grounded because it takes a lot of resources to actually build one. Um, so I don't know, what do you see in the future of flying cars? You see, is that still like a five years away type of thing? Or are we not going to see it for a couple hundred years? I don't, I, I don't really see a purpose for flying cars, to be honest. Um, you know, they already have like hovercraft that mm. I think it's compressed air or just some sort of propeller system that they hover like, you know, couple inches off the ground and they can kind of just move around like that. Um, but as far as like a propulsion system with thrusters and that kind of thing, like, well, for one, you'd need to have a system that doesn't rely on lift produced by wings because for that, you usually need high speeds to maintain that lift. Yeah. And I think just having craft that require high speeds isn't a recipe for productive logistical <laughs> traffic. <isn't> yeah. <laughs> um, but I think as far as using thrusters, you know, downward thrusters to maintain your, your lift and then thrusters to steer or whatever, you know, it's it's not it's not fuel efficient, for one thing. Um, and it's just it's just not necessary. Like there's roads everywhere. Like you can get you can get everywhere and for for places that don't have roads you have, you know, off road type ATVs or mm-hmm. just more rugged vehicles that are going to be a lot more practical than having some sort of hovering type craft. Um, from a transportation basis, you're obviously going to have like your self-driving autonomous vehicles that that are going to kind of start making headway and progression in that sense. Um, but I think as far as a mode of transportation, uh, as far as hovering versus driving, I don't think I, I honestly don't even see a reason for that, and that's probably the main. One of the main things is that they're just it's, it'd be a novelty thing, I think. Okay. But yeah, from a regulatory standpoint, that'd be crazy to try to have that on a highway or anywhere for that matter, other than like you know your own football field or yeah. racetrack or whatever. Unless they had their own built-in intelligence, like they're talking about doing with regular cars, like having them all network together so they 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 communicate and avoid crashes themselves. Mm-hmm. You take you take that kind of system, but in three dimensions, to actually have a reasonable chance of networking, like airborne highways, aerial highways. Yeah. Well, and just from an operational standpoint, like you know, you're not you don't have friction to rely on to steer or mm-hmm. brake. So 
collision avoidance is going to be ridiculous. Like, yeah. <laughs> or, like, you know, anything like that. And, and that kind of goes back to the fuel efficiency. Like, you're going to need thrusters to do anything. Mm-hmm. So unless you have some sort of super fuel efficient system then, and a super light vehicle. Like, I think, if anything, you might start seeing hover bikes first versus, like, sure. you know, sedans. Like, right. I think hover bikes would be a bit more foreseeable. And you, you do see a lot of really cool concept motorcycles that that come out every so often um, that I think are a lot more promising than, than any sort of family-sized vehicle that would become mainstream. Interesting. So you're kind of raining on the flying car parade there. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, not from a technological hurdle standpoint, but from a practicality and regulatory standpoint. Sure. So, to answer your original question, I think we are there, but there's just no need for it, and okay. it's not practical. You think technology-wise, if someone really wanted to build one, they could? Oh, wow, for sure. But it would just not be practical. Right. Interesting. Yeah, so. one of the things that movies that, any movie that portrays, like, a jet thruster that does vertical takeoff, hugely underscores the amount of downward thrust required yeah. to lift something like that. Yeah. Well, like they, they have, there's a mild wind on the ground underneath this craft, and it's pushing like tens of thousands of pounds of air downwards per second. Yeah, and they they do have fighter jets that can take off vertically off of aircraft carriers. Yeah, where their engines point down and then they lift up and then they kind of go from there. So that's it's not the technology's there; it's just not being used in a consumer sense. Sure, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so the next one here, the hoverboard. And this one, this one's kind of tricky. Um, I'm not sure if you saw the news that came out. Maybe we even talked about it. But uh, there was, there was slash is, I believe it's crowdfunded, uh, an actual prototype hoverboard that technically works. Mm-hmm. Did you see anything in the news about this or watch any of the videos? I th- I'm thinking of one that came out probably about a year ago, maybe, I want to say. Six months to a year ago. And it was a super viral video where it had, I think Tony Hawk was in it, yeah, um, and it had its own legit website, and yeah, a bunch of celebrities, and it was one of those like kind of camcordery type things, but it was produced and looked really legit, but it was obviously fake, like right, super fake, but it was cool and fun to watch, and yeah, it's fun to imagine of like a hoverboard type type product. Um, but it obviously didn't go into specifics of how it works because it wasn't real. Sure. Um, but I haven't. I I saw headlines about the new one, but I haven't had a chance to look into what it is. So maybe if you want to kind of go over. Yeah. So it's actually really interesting, and it it again it goes into the yes we can do this, but it's not practical at all, and so that's the reason it hasn't been commercialized. So the the hoverboard in. Back to the Future, it's never really explained again. It just sort of, it hovers a couple feet above the ground, and it, it almost it's almost like a low-to-the-ground version of the Magic Carpet in Aladdin, uh, except maybe without the mind of its own part. <laughs> and so it can basically just hover over anything, and there's these two metal pads, and you assume it's some kind of really strong magnet that's almost pushing against the Earth. Um, but that's not, that doesn't obey any physical laws. And so when they made this prototype hoverboard back in, I think it was November, December, there's been more news about it. Uh, They even had, I think, Buzz Aldrin on this prototype for some reason. He just wanted to see what it was like. 
Um, but basically, it only works on metal because that is a magnetic material. And so they basically just, it's exactly what you'd expect. They put a huge battery pack and they strapped superconducting magnets, or not superconducting, but very strong. Uh, I think mm. they're rare earth magnets. Electromagnets. Yeah, yeah. Le- rare earth and electromagnets uh, to the underside of a skateboard looking piece of material. And you just, it literally just creates a magnetic barrier between you and the gra- mm. and the metal ground that you're on. And so you can sort of move around. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen people have put uh, super cooled magnets in a track and you can like, it's sort of like a proof of concept, a small version proof of concept of magnetic levitation trains. Like this is just that, but in an open space shaped like a skateboard. And so it's cool technology, but it's like you couldn't use it as a real skateboard. Yeah. Now I have a question about, you're saying that it has to be on metal, but they'd have to induce a field in that metal though too, right? Because metal on its own doesn't have any oriented, it's ferromagnetic, but it doesn't have an oriented field. So you wouldn't be able to oppose like you wouldn't get levita- or magnetic repulsion. Um, repulsion, yeah. I, it wasn't you... clear to me from from what I watched. I didn't yeah. watch it for very long because I was sort of like, yeah, right. This is really minimal. I get it. Um, but I, I think I want to say that it just required metal because it used it didn't use ferromagnetism. It used what is it? Paramag- paramagnetism. Right. No, that's magnetism. Like it used. It used the magnetic fields in the magnets themselves. It didn't require the second thing to be magnetic. It just hovered it. Hmm. That was my understanding. Because I don't think, unless it was just iron, which is possible, and it just repelled. But in which case, you'd have to induce a field in that that material. That's I'd, I'd have to look in to see what they're but using. The, but. When you bring an electromagnet that's magnetic field is pointed downwards towards metal, it would repel, like, the magnetic, the electromagnetic field in the electromagnet would induce uh, opposite fields in the metal below and push it back. It wouldn't need the second thing to be a magnet. That's my understanding anyways. But again, it's not practical, and you can't use it on anything but a metal skate park. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Which is entirely practical. You could make a metal skate park. You could, but that would be really painful if you fell. And uh, I assume like the, the half-pipe corners would be really sharp. <laughs> well, actually, a metal skate park would probably be less dangerous than a concrete one, because you wouldn't get... like concrete burn if you right but that's why the jumps and like the ramps aren't they're like wood hardwood they're wood some some of the ramps and stuff are concrete depending on some of them yeah Yeah. like a pool or something yeah in some ways it's good but i think overall i think we'll have to put this in the like yes you've shown you can technically make a board that hovers over the ground but nobody's ever like it's not going to have any commercial purpose right not going to have any consumer purpose story. It might have commercial purposes. And I wouldn't even say there's a demand for it right now. Uh, other than Back to the Future fans, I think that sort of created a hype about just the possibility of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the next one on the list here is cold fusion and or garbage as a fuel source. So the, the premise there is at the end of the first movie, um, Doc Brown comes back from the future 
with his flying with a flying car that's powered by a mist a Mr. Fusion canister. So basically he he flips open the thing on the back of the DeLorean and he puts a bunch of garbage into it, closes it, and then it's refueled and it's able to fly more. So this the the sort of implication is that it's fusion that is powering this and it's so it's sort of the uh, ex machina of the movie in saying, okay, we're doing this, and now you have infinite energy, so anything you can say about uh, this flying car that's powered by garbage is moot because there's so much energy in nuclear fusion. Uh, so how about that? What do you think, just cold fusion in general, because in theory, a, a process for, for splitting the nucleus would be widely applicable if you could do it cold. Mm -hmm. So how close do you think we are to to fusion in general and then cold fusion, like, I I mean, like, self-contained fusion by humans, not in stars, obviously? I think for that we're a lot further away Mm -hmm. than anything else that we've talked about so far, I think. And even if we were there, there'd be those same regulatory hurdles to allow for it. I think... It would solve the issue of fuel efficiency because obviously fusion is very yeah, energetic. Efficient. <laughs> um, you know, I think Nick would have a bit more to say about this, but I think as far as where we're going, there's obviously a lot of research into fusion technology and just nuclear energy, um, especially in light of alternative energy initiatives. So I, I think I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what we come up with. Um, but as far as how far we get, we're obviously not there yet. But okay. I, I wouldn't say it's impossible in my naive, <laughs> relatively naive as far as nuclear energy goes. Sure. Um, I don't know. What, what, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, well, I really like the idea of cold fusion just in general, that... Right now, nuclear processes are really dangerous because you have to take radioactive material and split it, which causes... I mean, there are radioactive byproducts. There's the radiation itself. Getting rid of waste material is a whole issue in and of itself. Uh, But when you look at fusion, you're taking stable elements and safe elements. Like, they're stable from a nuclear perspective and they're stable from... uh, like just energy in general, they're not radiating anything, and combining them to get energy, which I just, like, it's... The... The hydrogen bomb was fusion, right? That, uh, like, it creates a massive amount of energy, but the it, it's the explosion that causes the... That was splitting atoms, though, wasn't it? The hydrogen bomb? Yeah. No, that was fusion. Like, it was creating... It was like fusing hydrogen I, I believe that's always been my understanding because like it's a hydrogen bomb um, but so the the amount of energy you get out of that is huge but mm-hmm. it doesn't have the sort of radioactive byproducts like you don't get this huge radiation cloud as well you just have mm-hmm. you just have the fusion products of hydrogen fusion mm-hmm. which is great. Like if you if you're able to control that process in some kind of engine, it's like it's the ideal fuel solution. There's there's a reason that like I mean we're alive right now because the sun is this beautiful, just far enough away giant fusion reaction. Yeah. 
So if we can harness that, which, which a lot of people are working on, and I mean, the fact that we've only had about 100 years of nuclear science means that there's a good chance we'll eventually get there. We just, I don't think we understand the laws. Like, quantum mechanics is a brand new scientific field. I think mm -hmm. once we get a better understanding of what's going on at that level, uh, it's it'll be a lot easier, and we're, we are improving our knowledge every day, but it's probably still a ways off. Yeah. The last one here is holographic projection. So in the second movie, uh, right at the beginning, when they come, when uh, Marty McFly comes to the future, uh, there's this giant. Uh, they're at a, there's a movie theater in the town square, and there's this giant holographic projection of, uh, I believe it's a shark. That like it's like it, they made they made a joke about like Jaws twenty three or something was coming out, and so this giant holographic shark comes down and Marty's, I mean, reasonably terrified of it, and so it comes down and like tries to bite him, and then just sort of evaporates because it's a hologram. Mm -hmm. uh, so this one, I, I'm interested to get your take, and then I'll give mine <laughs> on how closer to having that sort of realistic just yeah like it wasn't even it wasn't a photorealistic shark it was just like a it was almost like a cartoon shark more than more than okay anything. uh i don't know i i can't say i'm familiar enough with holographic projection technology or the concepts of it to know what hurdles there are to to overcome, I know, like say with 3D movies, right now we're relying on manipulating, you know, with filters and and how the movie is shot as far as the colors and that kind of stuff to to make the illusion of 3D. But you and then you have well, you have yeah, everything relies right now on putting on some sort of glasses to get the 3D effect. Yeah. So th I think just that on its own shows that we're. I think until we can get just a pure 3D experience without needing any sort of glasses or some sort of, you know, secondary filter to create the effect, I don't see holographic experiences being anywhere close. Right. So the beauty, of, I think, of like projecting a hologram in general is that nothing has to be physically in that spot. So when you're when you're watching a 3D movie on a screen, you need you need like the the whole point is to like make your eyes think you there's depth of field when there isn't. Yeah. And the technology that we do have for that is really good. Um, there are obvious shortcomings. I always complain about 3D movies not actually having depth of field because the 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 filmmaker has to pick a focal point. And they can shift that focal point, but whenever I watch a 3D movie, I always try to focus on the thing that's not in focus because that's how eyes work. Like we can change the focus, mm -hmm. the depth of focus in our own, like in our own vision. So it always completely takes me out of the movie when, like, we're we're looking at one character and another character is blurry, and I go to look at that character and it doesn't focus. Right. Uh, but in terms of a hologram, you you can physically represent something in three dimensions. Like, there was... I haven't actually watched any of the, these things, but uh, I know at one point Tupac was 3D projected to play at a concert. They had... Uh, Michael Jackson was also rendered in 
in a hologram at a concert to perform with. I want to say it was with Justin Timberlake, but that's probably just like a dream I had. Um, <laughs> but so from that perspective, the only thing that it would take, like in this case, it's a dark uh, area you're able to control. You can control if you have like a fog or something because yeah. normally in projection, you need a medium to project onto. There's a, there's a light show at Disneyland that I've been to that projected onto, I think it was water. So you need, like, you kind of need a, 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 a thing, like some some sort of matter to project onto, whether it's fog, whether it's water, whether it's smoke. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, the feasibility of doing it in the daytime is sort of less reasonable. Yeah. Is it really considered a hologram, though, or is that just projecting onto it? What, what like, do you define a hologram as? I don't know. I'm asking you. What, are you, I think what a, are you defining a hologram as? I think a hologram is a three-dimensional projected image. So these things were three-dimensional, though? Like like the the Tupac one was three-dimensional? Or That's is it my just understanding. A, I, th- I, think it's, I think it was three-dimensional. Because I, I remember hearing about it being called a hologram, but I, I didn't look at it to see, oh, that's what they were talking about. We'll have to, we maybe have to follow up yeah. with this one. But I yeah. think I think in terms of what I pictured it as from, like, I think I saw, I believe I saw a picture of it. Maybe it was like sort of the ideal shot. Um, we'll both, well, I'll, maybe I'll follow up and, and come back. I wouldn't yeah. put that on you. But uh, we'll both go and check out what the actual holograms looked like. Yeah. Because I feel like they were 3D, but maybe maybe that's wishful thinking. Maybe we're not as close to Back to the Future as, we, as I thought we were. Yeah. Well, that, and that's kind of what I'm thinking as far as how close we are. It's like, okay, well, to go from a visual trickery of three dimensions to literally projecting a three-dimensional, quote-unquote, object or an image just onto, even onto a medium, let alone just into thin air. Like, yeah. that's kind of a stretch and that's kind of what I'm saying I don't know the exact technology that would even be required for that like right. you know what I mean yeah. like as far as my knowledge of like optics and light and projections it's like you need to project onto something right? or have some sort of like interaction of different light sources to create whatever but sure. I don't know there'll be a follow up for sure yeah I'll, I'll follow up on the on the Tupac and Michael Jackson holograms I think Oh no, Michael Jackson's with Rihanna. That's familiar. I'll, I'll go look it up. Okay. Uh, so that's it for the Back to the Future segment. Um, I love that movie. I think I should probably watch it again now that we're in 2015. Yeah. <laughs> I think you should watch it. To period. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm sure you've seen like bits and pieces, yeah. but never the whole thing. Yeah, I've seen clips from it, and I, you know, every couple months you see the oh, today's a day that w- they went to in the future, and it never actually is because they yeah. just photoshopped the screenshot. Yeah. But I guess this year we are going to actually get to that date. Yeah, yeah. This, this is the actual one. Yeah. So speaking of movies that people should watch that everyone's talking about right now, let's go to a, a little... I mean, this has obviously been talked about again and again uh, with the interview. Mm-hmm. Now... When I first saw the trailer for that movie, it actually didn't look half bad. You know, right. you know, Seth Green's funny, or yeah, Seth Rogen, and um, you know, uh, James Franco. James also. Flacco. I was, I was gonna say James Francis. No, James Franco is 
is is a good guy too. So I don't know. It, it looked okay, and then there's this whole thing about North Korea getting all up in arms about it, and before you knew it, Sony got hacked, and they're saying that if you show the movie, we're gonna do whatever. Yeah. Um, so I guess this kind of reflects on how long it's been since we actually had the future chat show because this yeah. is actually a little bit old now. But um, I guess there's been de- developments the past couple weeks where at first they pulled it from all theaters and then they're like, okay, well, only to select theaters. And then people were calling for it to be released online. And then they actually did end up releasing it online. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, we're kind of in, more in the aftermath of the whole the whole thing. And I think it was almost a proof of concept for how movie companies and production companies and theaters can operate going forward as a model for the future, almost. And, you know, we talked about on the show a couple times how, you know, we wish that more movie production companies would release movies online so that people didn't have to go out to the theater, and they didn't have to wait for it to be out in theaters, and you have to, they didn't miss out on it if it got taken away from theaters, and have to wait for it to get on DVD or pirate it or whatever you're you're trying to get the movie. But if they release it online for like you know five bucks, seven bucks, whatever, you'd probably have quite a few uh, people, definitely a demographic that would be open to to spending money on on being able to watch a movie in their home um, or on their tablet or whatever. Yeah, um, especially when you get to like franchises like Lord of the Rings or, you know, Harry Potter, those those types of movies where people will be excited for the movie and want to spend their money to watch it. It's like why not make it available outside of what the theater's offering? So, yeah. um, I don't. I think the numbers they gave were like fifteen million dollars in yeah. revenue for it, um, both between theater release and the online. I thought that fifteen million was just the theaters. Maybe it's twenty-two million total. They they gave they gave a total combined revenue. Right. Yeah. Um, that was divided up between both the rentals and the the theater revenue. Um, but there's enough people renting it online or buying it online yeah. or whatever that contributed to that amount that was not insignificant, and right. I think. Is definitely something worth considering from a from a revenue standpoint and accessibility standpoint. Yeah. So uh, I just want to think because I'm I'm thinking back to the details. You posted a story about bad math or lack of math, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. From one site. Um, yeah. So when they did the limited release on Christmas on Christmas Day, yeah. it actually was released in the yeah. 300 theaters in the states. I think they said that made one million dollars. Like that one. Yeah, like one and a half or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then the fifteen million dollar number was just downloads, either buying it or renting it. Because the the article you posted was, they said there were two million total download, two million total watches or or like purchase slash rentals, mm-hmm. and it made fifteen million dollars, and it was six dollars to rent and fifteen dollars to buy. And they didn't do the algebra, the very simple algebra to figure out how much was which. They were like speculating on who knows how many bought, how many rented, but it was all online. Right. And then the theater stuff was separate, and that was only 300 theaters in in the States, and now it's going through a wider release in theaters. 
but I think the 15 million was just online, and then it was a, a there was a number of around a million from the first day or two of its theatrical release. That's my. So it says okay. So the article said the interview generated roughly 15 million dollars in online sales and rentals yeah. during its first four days of availability. Yeah, so that's just okay, yeah, so you're right, yeah, so 50 million was just from the online stuff, not the theaters. Yeah. Okay. Which is, I mean, it's not a lot lower than just a regular theater release for a, a moderately successful movie in the first weekend, even, like, considering that it's just the States and, yeah. like, a couple of other countries. Yeah, plus a limited, limited cinematic yeah. release. It's not like Cineplex was hosting it or whatever. Exactly. Um, but, yeah, so, okay, so... Now we got that straight. So 15 million was both the the sales and rentals, not including the cinema. So I guess they haven't released the cinema numbers, or you'd have to look at it further. But yeah, um, they they probably have box office numbers somewhere, yeah. but it's really limited, and it's not a good representation of how much money the the film has a capacity to make. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I guess that all the more reason that it's a proof of concept that 15 million dollars could be made just in online. Yeah. Availability. So. I'd when, <laughs> definitely like to see more of that, for sure. Yeah, in a world where um, you have the option of buying or renting this movie and watching it and going and finding it online for free with very little extra effort, if, if any extra effort, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's satisfying to me that the proof of concept of releasing it online, I mean, after all this sort of terrible stuff happened to Sony, it ended up being a good proof of concept for people that might want to step into online. Yeah. Releases. When I think we talked about this in whatever episode when we're talking about say piracy, right? Like yeah. torrents, yeah. and how there are people that are willing to pay for online content, you know, at a reasonable price. Like maybe not yeah. full full price for a CD like twenty bucks or whatever, but if you can buy a full album for like three bucks, then like yeah, why not? And then you you're seeing artists now release their full album for free online. Yeah, like because you know, like having a pay what you want type of model. Yeah, pay what you want kind of thing, and people are more willing to to do that. So yeah, I'm yeah. I'm looking forward to that future where the the like the theater chains and the like I mean I want to say like the the theater or the film companies, but really it's all conglomerates now. Like there's like two or three media companies that own everything. Yeah, it's like Sony, Fox, Disney. Paramount, or whatever. Yeah. Disney owns everything. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, another interesting, like, going into the the world of sort of the seedy underbelly of piracy, uh, I was reading it, it apparently yesterday, January 2nd, uh, the, the sort of torrent, not torrent, the, the copyright infringement laws in Canada that were made last year went into effect. And so now uh, internet service providers are required to track uh, copyright infringement from, like when they get copyright infringement notices for whatever certain files are being downloaded uh, from a film company, they, the ISPs are required to inform customers of, the, the, like they're basically required to pass on a notice saying you infringed this copyright or whatever. Uh, I mean, whatever the case may be, but the, the, it sort of puts the onus on the ISP to at least inform 
people that they've infringed copyright because I think there's a certain subset of population that doesn't realize they're doing something wrong mm-hmm. in going and downloading a movie online. They're just like, well, I found it. Like, it's it's right here. It's not hard to find. <laughs> yeah. And so it's interesting. The, the service providers are not required to give the film companies or more specifically their lawyers the actual information about customers downloading, but they're required to inform the customers that they're basically required to pass along this copyright mm. infringement notice. Hmm. Which is interesting because the the language of the the law also specifically targets VPNs. And so that's a, that's a way a lot of people circumvent at least being discovered. There was a whole thing when the Hurt Locker was released on DVD. There was a huge surge of uh, online downloads and then somehow the company that made the movie ended up getting the information of a certain number of people that had downloaded it and basically they can sue you for a ridiculous amount of money any amount they want really just to get anyone that stole it to basically pay a small sum to settle it and make it go away and so they re- they're able to recoup a lot of their alleged losses that way and but it's kind of like it's almost like copyright trolling because you're not expecting to actually go to court on any of these cases. You're basically saying, I'm suing you for $10 million and uh, I'll go away if you pay me 1000 Right. <laughs> like, but it's, it's, it's different than that because they're not even targeting like, you know, the Apples and the Microsofts of the world. They're targeting Joe Schmo in Arizona who wanted to watch a movie. Yeah. And, you know, I, I remember reading one example of a guy who was, according to the article, made it seem like he was running some sort of piracy ring, like making a business of it mm-hmm. and distributing and that kind of thing. And whatever company came after him and sued him, and he actually got into a lot of trouble for it. Yeah. But he was doing a lot more than just downloading stuff for personal use and sure. not making anything of it. He was like hosting servers and, and all this kind of stuff. And But I think the idea was that they were trying to make an example of him and to yeah. scare people from doing similar, something similar. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I think it's it's fair that those kinds of people who, who are trying to, you know, either make money off of it or distributing on a large scale like that I think that goes above and beyond just your average guy just looking for the latest movie to download and watch. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if you cut off... I mean, it's like the Hydra. If you cut off that guy, a lot of the... Tra- like, any of the traffic, any of the movies he's uploaded are... Like, that's completely fair. He did something hugely illegal and also enabled a bunch of other people to see this movie illegally, whereas... When you, if you download a movie illegally, yes, you're like that company, the theater company loses out on one movie ticket or DVD purchase, but you're not enabling thousands or tens of thousands of other people Mm -hmm. to also steal this. Like you're not, you're not costing the company millions, you're costing the company like five or ten bucks. Right. If, if any, because... A lot of the time, you probably wouldn't even bother going to the movie theater if it right. wasn't exactly. available for free. So it's yeah. like, well, you're not really using anything because I wasn't going to go see it anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but 
yeah, I think I think as far as companies pursuing uh, copyright infringements, they're within their right to, but I don't think it's productive. Yeah, it's definitely. I mean, from a from an overall movie entertainment experience, it's not productive at all because mm-hmm. you want people to feel safe watching your your thing, and you want to give them. One of the big arguments is that if you have an easy way to view this, like a simple, easy way to, to I, I don't know what the word is, like use this entertainment that they put up, people are going to do that. The whole that, that happened with streaming music. Music mm-hmm. piracy used to be a huge thing, and then stores like iTunes and the Google Play Store came out and made it really easy. And so people aren't pirating as much music as they used to, and they're also not buying as much, but they're, yeah. because they're streaming it. Well, and I see it in the similar way that the music industry is going now, or has always been maybe, it's more like, but is definitely relying on more now, is artists or performers, I guess, are using concerts and shows as the revenue generators and their yeah. album releases as more or less an advertising cost. Yep. And that's why artists are releasing their music online for free or pay what you can or pay what you want or whatever is so they can get that exposure and then you know you buy the Justin Timberlake album then when he comes to town it's like oh I love his stuff I've heard all his music let's go yeah and and I think the movie industry should start adapting the same model where they release their content you know online um, you know for a reasonable price or whatever and say you see like a James Franco movie online and it's like, oh, this is funny, whatever. So the next time that you make an intentional point to go to a movie, say with friends or on a date or whatever, then you're going to pick that movie to go see because you've seen that stuff before. Because these days people use movie theaters as an experience and an outing, not, oh, let's go see a movie. Like, again, it depends on what type of movie. Like maybe it's something like The Hunger Games where it's like, you know, fans of the the franchise where might go see the movie for yeah. you know intentionally but a lot of people at least the people i know they don't just go to a movie because they want to see it it's like hey what do you want to do tonight oh let's go see a movie and then they'll pick the movie they don't yeah. have a movie in mind waiting for it to come out kind of thing yeah so one of the interesting things here that you like i that i see playing out is the difference between netflix which has a here's your entire movie collection. You can watch whatever you want, whenever you want, and pay once a month. Versus, hey, here's 10,000, 100,000, a million movies. You can watch them. Like You can pay every time you want to watch one, and you get to watch it for 24 hours or however long it is. And I think overall, like in the end, I think a, a streaming service is going to win out as a business model, but I don't think a lot of people knew or even still know that you can rent movies from YouTube or that you can rent movies from Google Play Store. And so I think the interview being released on those services, a lot of people will see, oh, hey, the interview's up, and they go search for it, and they see, like, a YouTube link pop up, and and you pay Google $6, and you get to watch a movie. Mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people were ever have ever been exposed to that model, and so seeing it, they're seeing it for the first time, and and this could open up a whole new thing because there are lots of movies that are available for rent on YouTube that, like you, you just don't really hear about it. Mm-hmm. 
Well, the difference with streaming is that, like, it's a reasonable price you know, on a per-day basis, even a per-use basis, and it's just there, and it's convenient. Yeah. Whereas, say, like, you know, up here in Canada with Shaw or Comcast down in the States, whatever, they'll have their video-on-demand services, but it's all a la carte, pay-per-view type yeah. content, and people are going to see a $5 price tag next to a movie. It's like, well, that's not even a good movie. Or, right. or it's just it's a one-time cost that you're parting with yeah. at, in that specific 24 hours. But, you know, if it's like Netflix where you just have it available as a cable-type replacement, then you're just going to watch whatever's on there. And if there's a specific movie that, say, you know, you know, let's say the interview, it's like, oh, everyone's talking about it, I'm interested in seeing it, then you go look for it. And if it's not available on Netflix, then you're just going to look for other other sources. But you might not necessarily go to the theater if it's not available there, obviously, or or just whatever other available sources there are. Um, but yeah, you know, Google Play movies. I've been seeing a lot of you know you know Hollywood blockbuster movies that are being released on Google Play, which is is good to see. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's a good it's a good model to have. And the fact that everything, every, like a lot of Google properties are going that way. They've they've partnered with, uh, well, they've always been partnered with Vivo, but they've like Google is releasing their the YouTube Music uh, as an ad free product if you subscribe to Google. I guess it's not called Google Play Music All Access anymore. It's just Google Play Music subscription. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting to see Google Key or Google. Play? Music Key is Music Key is the new one. Is that the actual name, or is that just what yeah. people were talking about before? I thought it was just like with your with your Google Play Music subscription, you get access to the YouTube. Is it YouTube Music Key? I mean, it's just Google Music Key, which includes the YouTube content. I don't know about that. If it is, that's, <laughs> that's a weird name. I thought that was like the code name for it. No, it was called All Access, and then they were getting migrated over to the Music Key service, which included the YouTube subscription. Interesting. I'm going to go look that up and then ridicule them if that's actually the name they went with in the end. I thought that was a code, like a temporary code name while they were... It might have been. I yeah. that, that, that was the last name I heard it referred okay. to as. Yeah. If I ever, like if I ever get an Android as my main device, that's the first place I'll go, because I have iTunes Match right now which is amazing, but I, like I do have my library on Google Play Music, but it would be so cool to just have the sort of yeah. iTunes radio type thing, and and I like the Google Play interface a lot more than I like the iTunes radio interface because I've played around with it. I have a, a US iTunes account, so I if I sign into that, I get the Google. The, um, yeah. Speaking of iTunes copyright infringement, radio. <laughs> <laughs> how is that um, copyright infringement? A US. Service anyway. What am I? What copyright am I infringing? Oh. If I have it, like it's I'm I can legally get a U.S. credit card and I can legally sign up for a U.S. iTunes account. I'm not breaking any laws by doing that. How can you legally get a U.S. credit card? You don't have a U.S. address. Yeah, I don't know. It's definitely <laughs> possible though. No one's saying it's not possible. It's just legally actually, able to. I think all I had to do. I don't even. I don't. I don't actually have a U.S. credit card. Um. All I had to do was enter a U.S. address in, like, when I created an iTunes account. Right, which they assume is your actual address. 
But I don't see how, I don't think that's breaking any laws. <laughs> any lawyers, feel free to follow up with us on whether or not that's legal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I've, I've always wanted, like, on YouTube, yeah, I'll come across a good song, and then I'll want to play it offline. Or not offline, but just in the background, and it doesn't let you do that. But now right. with this new service, it, it lets will, you. Which yeah. Is good, but I'm at, I'm not at the point where I'm willing to pay for that because I don't use it often enough. Yeah, to, exactly. So let's go in a completely different direction now. Uh, I don't have a segue for this, but I I'm in. We've we're always interested in new technology, and this is a month of a lot of new technology. And uh, the highlight of that is the Consumer Electronics Show, or the CES, which happens every January. And, Mike, do we have any reason, more so than other years, to be excited about this? Or is it a lot of space for tech bloggers and journalists to go and check out cool stuff and then forget about it next month because it's still far away? Like, it's still far from being actually released in stores. I think, you know, we were talking about this pre-show, but I think we're at the point now where we're almost at, like, a, well, not a singularity, but we're we're at a point where almost new... An inflection point. Yeah, it's like all new technologies have kind of been released, and now we're at a point where we're, like, just improving on existing technologies or making changes. Even improvements is a very subjective kind of take these days. Yeah. Um, say, like, you know, the Galaxy Note Edge, right? Arguably, it's definitely different. It's debatably better, but it's different. Yeah. So at least it's something to be excited about, which was released last year. Last um, year at CES, right? No, it was at the um, the one in Berlin. Oh, not Mobile CES. World Congress? No. Uh there's so many of these things. It's whatever the other one, the European one that they have. What is IFA? Is that? Oh, that's how. Yeah, that was that one. Okay. Yeah, it was yeah. released at IFA. Yeah, thank you. Um, but CES is yeah, kind of more of a North American one, I think. Okay. And uh, but similar concept, and it's just a chance for the technology company to come and show what they have in store for that year. And the talk this year have been mostly just yeah, incremental improvements such as. Um, you know, curved TVs, 4K definition, um, you know, different wearables integrating with different types of stuff, I guess. Yeah. Um, one of the things that they've brought out is the uh, is a different type of phone that can access multiple uh, LTE bands to have faster transmission speeds. Um and another thing is a add-on to watches. So instead of having to buy, say, like a Moto 360, you can buy this band that attaches to your existing watch that allows you to receive notifications and interact with your with your phone. Um, because one of the complaints with smartwatches is that people don't want to sacrifice the luxury and the look of a, you know, legitimate, or not legitimate, but a conventional watch for the functionality of a smartwatch. So this kind of gives you both. Um, so it's, it's little things like that that are kind of cool, interesting, but nothing to kind of, like, get super, super excited over. Right. Um, so I think, you know, we'll see next week kind of what they come out with. Um, but at this point, 
there isn't anything brand new. Like I think the last big thing was the Apple Watch. Um, yeah. That people were kind of anticipating and, and expecting, but I think that was kind of an anomaly in an otherwise fairly ho-hum. So it's interesting. You've been talking since the announcement of Google Wear at I.O. last year. Mm-hmm. You've been talking pretty much nonstop about how excited you are to get an Android Wear watch. Yeah. And so a bunch of new Android Wear watch, watches were released in 2014. Mm-hmm. And yet you're saying that this has been a ho-hum year. Like, 2014 was a ho-hum year for, for new technology. And yet 2015 is going to be awesome because the Apple Watch in, is coming out. No, in, in <laughs> hindsight, in hindsight, 2014 was more banal because I think people were underwhelmed by the offerings of okay. of the smartwatch that were released. Um. And the Apple Watch, I it was the same way. I was like, okay, if anyone's gonna like blow our minds, it's gonna be Apple. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was, it was exciting to see it release, but then it's like, it's kind of like the, the excitement hangover, kind of, or or just kind of like, you hype yourself up for it, and then it's it's not as exciting as you've hoped, or you start seeing that oh, it doesn't do this, it's lacking this. So then you're kind of right. waiting for the second generation. That's kind of where I am right now with with smartwatches in general. Is you know the first generation is is promising, but I think there's still something left to be desired for that second generation that I'm willing to hold out for. Yeah. Before before adopting. Um. And so yeah, as far as 2015, ideally you're starting to see some second generation Android Wear watches that will hopefully be incorporating some of the the minor things that are kind of like that tipping point of not getting it and getting it. Yeah. One of the big things that sticks out for me is the Moto 360 actually becoming a full 360-degree screen watch. <laughs> yeah. And and I think that's, for, for myself, that's a fairly minor thing that actually never really bothered me. Right. Um, it, it was a lot smaller than people were making it out to be. Like, yeah. I mean, physically it yeah. was a lot smaller, but... Yeah. Well, what, what people are what comparing it to is, say, with the G Watch R, where it's there's no flat tire as people call it, yeah. but there's the bigger bezel, and it's yeah. kind of like, hey, you're gonna have a big bezel, or you're gonna have a flat tire, so pick your poison, and yeah. that's kind of what you live with. Um, and for me, I think the 360 looks nicer than the G Watch. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I think the G Watch has its own appeal. Uh, just almost looking for more of a sporty watch, or it's just used to a bigger watch with a bigger bezel. Um, but for me, I think if I was going to pick a watch, it would be the 360. But I think what the 360 offers right now, I'd like it to have GPS in the watch itself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, the wish list would add, you know, like 3G communication, but that's. I think I wouldn't want to sacrifice size for additional communication ability. Yeah. But I think from a functionality standpoint, I'd like to have GPS. So, you know, if I was going on a run or a bike ride, I'd be able to at least do some sort of fitness tracking. Sure. With the watch without having to take my phone with me. That being said, I don't know if I'd necessarily not bring my phone because, you know, I guess it's good to have a phone on you. but Yeah, it is. Um, an interesting thing that has happened in sort of, I mean, in my personal life, 
since the Apple Watch was announced, I've been thinking a lot more about input devices and how tedious it's become to type onto a, even a larger screen. And so I've been making an effort to use the, like since iMessage came out with sending audio messages back and forth, I've been using it a lot more. Like I've been trying to, if I'm not in an area where people are around, like I'll just send a quick voice message instead of typing something out. Mm-hmm. And I, like it conveys tone, it conveys a lot more emotion. You can put like nuance into things. You can emphasize different syllables. It's not just like typing something out. I really like it, and the way that iMessage does it, you can you can save voice messages, but if you don't, they just like you, after, two minutes after you listen to them, they delete off your device, and so you're not mm-hmm. keeping this huge backlog of files. Oh, you're seeing. Oh, sorry, I'm back up. You're talking like actual audio messages, not actual just voice audio messages, diction. Yeah. Oh, okay, got it. I've been use I, I use voice a lot. Like I use Siri quite a bit. Yeah. But I'm I'm in this instance I'm talking about actual audio okay. messages. And so the the Apple Watch, which is going to rely heavily on either of those things, mm-hmm. is kind of compelling to me because I much prefer sending an actual message than typing something out. Mm-hmm. I much prefer sending. Either, like, I, I love video chats a lot more than that for the same reason. Like, you're able to convey much more information in an actual conversation than you are in a, in a text conversation. Mm-hmm. So, on that note, the other day I was had my headphones in, which have a microphone on them. Yeah. And I know that with the, the new, I think it's with Lollipop specifically, that they have the always listening Google Now on whatever screen you're on, even when it's locked. Yeah. It's it allows you to to trigger the the Google Now voice uh, voice activated system, which also works with um, external devices such as a microphone, which is what the Moto Hint works on as well. Um, so this works the same way as a Moto Hint, where like you know you have headphones in with the mic on it, and you can just say you know okay Google, and then it goes bloop. And then it's listening to what you want it to do. So you know, I did that. You know, oh, call so and so, and it started dialing. And I think that's kind of the way that I'd like technology progressing, where you're even at the point where even where there's people around, it's you're not as self-conscious about yeah. just. And it's it's funny because if you're just talking to someone on the phone, you wouldn't be self-conscious because, yeah. but you just feel stupid like just talking to a phone when there's no one on the other yeah. end. Right. But I think I like where you're going with, you know, sending audio messages where it's not as kind of intrusive as making a phone call. Yeah. Where like someone has to pick up and oh hey. Yeah. Sorry to bother you or whatever, but you're just sending an audio message. Yeah. And and I and I think that's definitely something that you can see more of going forward where yeah, instead of sending a text, you just send a quick audio message that you play. And yeah, that ideally gets deleted from your own device, you know, once it's read or yeah. once it's listened to, I guess, right? Yeah. Or saved on the cloud or or whatever. Um, but I think right now what I'd like is some sort of like UI, like heads up display type thing that comes up once you start. Kind of like we yeah, we don't have to use your hands because it's tedious yeah. just pulling out your phone and even to pull out your phone and use the voice system. I want something like right here that is listening to me versus having to pull up my phone and just like talk into it. Sure. Another really interesting uh, technology paradigm that I uh, talked about before we 
move on. Uh, and I, I've talked to you about this before, the Snapchat video chatting mm-hmm. functionality. Yeah. They, I mean, Snapchat started out, you could just send messages to, to people and they would expire after 10 seconds. And then they, they've also since introduced chat that disappears. And if both, if two people are in the same, are both in their chat window, suddenly you get a pop-up where you can hold a part of the screen, like a button, and it will send your video to that person if they're sitting there waiting for it. So with real-time communication, you can actually have this, like, literally, it's a completely ad hoc video chat because you just, you literally hold down your screen and they, you can see each other, and if you let go of the screen, it's gone. Like, there's no making, that's not making a call. That's just, like, opening your end of a portal to the other person. Right. So it removes a lot of the friction, and I haven't really gotten into it, but every time I've tried it, I've been like, man, this is a cool proof of concept. Like, this, that's going to be the future of communication. Mm-hmm. You won't have to type out a message. You will literally just be like, select the person you want to talk to, and, like, it would notify them, hey, I want to talk, and they would come on, and then you'd see that they came on, and then you'd be like, all right, now, now we're just talking. Mm-hmm. There's no friction in this conversation at all. Uh, the Hangouts app for the iPad has the same thing. When you're in any given conversation, if you swipe in from the right of the screen, it will start hanging out with that person or that group mm-hmm. of people. It's just, I really like reducing the amount of friction to having an actual, like, intent, like, not intense, but, like, a real-time chat with more than just text information available. Really excited for the future of communication, and I I think 2015 is going to be a big year for that. I mean, I, I always say that. I think like I'm always like this is the year SMS is going to not be a thing anymore, <laughs> and then it always is. <laughs> yeah. I only have a couple people that actually send SMS text messages to anymore. Yeah, I think right now between myself and and Maria, it's mainly just like her parents that still use SMS, but they're fully capable. Well, actually, no, her mom doesn't have. Actually, no, now she has a smartphone, but there's no data plan on it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think at this point, everyone's capable of moving away from SMS. Yeah. It's just, like, you, you're not going to get everyone on board. Like, right. It's kind, of, it's kind of like when you're trying, like, you know, we're, we use Slack. Yeah. But we also use Hangouts. Yeah. Now, if, say, if you and or I stopped using Hangouts, just refuse to use it we'd probably move to something else that we're all okay using. Yeah. Right? But because we're all just continuing to use Hangouts, there's no reason to switch over. Right. It takes some sort of feature that is, like, yeah. almost impossible to go back from. Yeah. And that, that definitely happened to me with Hangouts compared to SMS, compared to Facebook Messenger. Like, there are a lot of features of Hangouts that you don't get on other platforms. Yeah. That's why like, I use that as my primary messaging source. Yeah. Like, one of the really nice things about Hangouts, obviously, is a cross-platform your message delivery yeah. gets everywhere. Like, yeah. even to, like, your email. It yeah. keeps, like, an archive of your of your chat log. Like, you can't do real-time. Well, I guess you can real-time in the browser, but, yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, Hangouts is everywhere, like, your tablet, your phone, your computer, whatever. Any web browser anywhere, yeah. yeah. It's really great. So that's one of the really good things. It's just now you want that Google Voice aspect where you can just move away from having a phone number altogether. And yeah. Then you're, that's my that's, that's my golden dream. goal. That it wouldn't matter what I was using. Yeah, people in the states have it so good. <laughs> they, don't, they don't even know it. They don't even know it. 
Oh man, yeah, communication's really good. Uh, next. I don't know how how long do you have. We got a couple more stories here. You want to mm. plow through? Let's. Uh... I like. I have this story here. Um, cancer weighs on a lot of our minds. Mm-hmm. And so this, I've I've always sort of thought of science as being this thing you learn about in school, and it's it's there are very very strict rules about it. Like I'm, I have a master's in chemistry, and you learn this is the way things are. It's very black and white when it's taught, and then you start going in and doing research. Like especially at the postgraduate level, you start doing research, and you see that, oh wait, no, everything's gray. There's there's no black and there's no white, and everything is somewhere in between. And so the story came out about the way that cancer forms in they, they did a huge study uh, they cre- and they created a statistical model of how people get cancer and why they get it comparing things like uh, environmental risk factors like smoking uh, genetics um, being predisposed I mean there are there are it's not necessarily genetics if something runs in your family like there are genetic factors that run in families but they're also just risk factors that different uh, like because of environmental impacts in different cultures, there are so many reasons you can get cancer. But the crazy thing about cancer is that a lot of it is our body not being able to catch mutations that happen. Mutations are happening all the time. There's no way you can prevent it. Like you'd have to be in a sealed lead box that's like six inches thick to not get radiation. And then, uh, but you get lead poisoning. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, so this this study they did, they were trying to find out across tissue types uh, how likely it was that cancer was going to be caused by uh, something like smoking and association with lung cancer. Uh, and what they found was the the faster yeah, cells in the the, the tissue divide. Like, for instance, one of the examples they use of tissue that divides really quickly in humans is colon tissue. And it, so it divides really quickly, and they found that the incidence of colon cancer in humans is really high. But they core, like they said, basically, there's nothing, there's no environmental risk factor that causes colon cancer. It's very, there's very little. And they compared it to the small intestine, which is basically the same sort of environment as the colon, but the small intestine cells divide a lot less rapidly. Hmm. And there's a lot less incidence of small intestinal cancer. And so this this was one of the defining things in... Uh, because they contrasted that with mice, which are the opposite. So mice, the colons, are mice colons, mouse colons, don't they don't divide as quickly as human colons do. Their, their stem cells don't divide as quickly. And they found that, like, colons are colons. They're, I mean, it's, just, it's the same organ. It provides the same function in mice and in humans, but the, the, the mouse one d- divides more slowly. And they found that colon cancer incidence in mice was a lot less than the small intestine, whereas in humans it was more. And the only real difference that they were able to find was that 
it was this, the speed of cell division. And they found that across all tissue types. And they said they, out of the 30 tissue types they looked at, they said 21 uh, were more likely to be caused, cancers were more likely to be caused by just bad luck of random mutations from stem cells dividing quickly. Uh, whereas the other nine they looked at, it turned it like it was important. And so lungs were one of those that it was more important environmental risk factors because the cells divided slowly enough that it wasn't, that wasn't causing the risk. It was things like in, inhaling like radioactive material from cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And I, I just thought that was a really cool story because you hear like, oh, if you smoke, you're going to get cancer. If you uh, are obese or if you, like all, there are all these risk factors for various mm-hmm. cancers and there's basically nothing you can do about it except not smoke or not do whatever. Like if you're, if you're going to get it, you're going to get it. And the only way to stop is to stop smoking. But they found that for most tissues, that wasn't the case. It was really about luck. And so they're using that to show that the focus of this type of medicine should be about preventative care. It should be about going to get routine screenings to catch any cancers you do get randomly early. And one of the reasons that, uh, like, the, one of the reasons that cancer is killing so many, such a large, larger percentage of humans than it used to, is that it's in it, these mutations occur and they build up over time. It takes a lot. It takes like twenty different mutations for any given cell to become cancerous, and that so that has to build up over a series of usually around ten to twenty years. And so the the human body has lots of mechanisms to basically delete mistakes they have lots of error correcting functions and one of the error correcting functions that we've been working on really hard is the preventative kind like going to see your doctor getting checked for breast uh for like breast tumors breast cancer is hugely prevalent but you can substantially reduce your risk by like going to see the doctor getting mammograms that kind of thing and so they're all, it's able to get them to focus their research money and their research efforts on those specific types of cancer that are just caused by bad luck. So you can take the, the things like lung cancer, and I think skin cancer was another one from sun exposure. Um, you can take those and say, all right, these types of cancer prevent by not smoking or by not getting hours and hours of sun and getting melanomas. But there are these other types of cancer, like colon cancer, for instance, were the best and really only good way to, to prevent yourself from getting uh, like a malignant colon tumor is by catching it early and removing it before it spreads. So I just, I, it's a really cool study and I, I'm going to put a link to it in the notes because it's just really cool. Hmm. So is it, I guess, I guess reading between the lines, it's almost like the cancer rate like per cell division, it's potentially consistent, but when you have just more right. cell divisions, you'll have higher instances. Yeah. Right. So you have like your your cancer rate is not that changing potentially. Like just yeah. like reading reading into it a little bit, yeah. but just because there's more cell divisions, there's more chances, like more opportunities for cancer to develop. Yeah. Because it's going faster, and yeah, you have, like if it's one in a million. 
if you have a million cell divisions faster, you're going to get more yeah answers exactly. kind of thing, right? So that's that's kind of that's interesting. Like I think that kind of study is very hard to control. It is, yeah. But it at least gives yeah some some insight and adds some additional additional yeah. questions. And and it almost goes against what I've read a lot as far as screenings and that kind of thing, where doctors tend to say, well, if you're not at risk, there's no benefit or limited benefit to getting screened like say with like prostate cancer like yeah. there's a specific demographic of you know men over 55 or whatever yeah. that it's not even worth getting screened unless you're in that demographic almost like yeah. and you know it's 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 part of like well it, it can't hurt but it's like well there's just no reason to almost yeah. like I, I'm not a doctor, so I don't... I'm sure doctors would prefer to focus on the higher-risk patients because they don't want, you know, a 20-year-old coming, oh, check my prostate. Like, sure. You probably don't have prostate cancer, but it's almost like, yeah, regular screenings are your best defense. Yeah, and and the the point of the... I think the point of, like, it's they're not saying... They, they didn't do a study with controls, per se. They, did a, they produced a t- statistical model based on different tissue types, and so, for instance, it, when it comes to prostate cancer, that that certainly shows that cancer builds over time. It's people, what is it, over 50, over 55 that you should Whatever get it is, yeah. Because yeah. that's that's the point when these uh, these mutations will have built up to the point that you can actually have a cancer that starts to take over. Mm-hmm. Uh, in breast cancer, it's sort of the same idea. Like, there's not... it's very unlikely that you're going to get it at a young age. You're more likely to get it as you get older. Mm-hmm. And so it, it is, to a certain point, about mediating risk, but they're not saying, like people have even said, the it's not worth getting yearly mammograms because the, the risk of false positives and having to remove benign tumors is more than the risk of actually getting, uh, like, malignant. of getting a malignant tumor. But at a certain point, there's a point where that statistical model balances out, and maybe it's somewhere around five years, maybe it's somewhere around every ten years you should get checked. Mm-hmm. But there's no risk. Like, when people talk about giving yourself a breast self-exam, there's no risk to that. Like, it's a right. good thing to do, because then if you do feel something, you can go and get checked. Yeah. But th- but then at the same time, you feel whatever, and then it's like... Well, right. It's a, like There's a certain amount of training, and I mean, there yeah. there are resources online where you can find what to actually look for. Well, hypochondriac is going to think they're sick no matter what. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more training you have in what to look for, what to feel for, the better off you're going to be. Yeah. Uh, and so I just want to, before we close that out, I want to say that the statistical model they found put a, they said it was, for the scientists among us, the R, the correlation factor between uh Cell, stem cell division in tissues and cancer rates from just bad luck of random mutations is 0.8, which is about a 65% correlation. So it's it's not perfect, but they also haven't studied all tissue types yet. Mm-hmm. So they found enough evidence to at least be con- be reasonably confident to, to warrant more research. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up... Just uh, this is sort of a fun story because Internet Explorer is pretty widely regarded as being the worst popular browser you can use. Uh, so news came out in the last week or so 
that Microsoft is working on a new lightweight web browser. Prob possibly codenamed Spartan, which I think is interesting because they keep they, they, they're tying their products together like Spartan is a word that they already use in Halo. And I just think it's kind of funny because you, you see I, I can't think of the other example right now, but you, they tend to name their products in ways that tie them into other uh, I think wasn't something else named Halo? Some maybe it was a like a design thing, Windows 10. But they, I don't know. The like Spartan is a word from Halo. Mm -hmm. that, like that's the I, I haven't played Halo a lot, but that's like the character you are is yep. Spartan. And so I don't know. What do, what do you think about a cross-platform Microsoft, a lightweight cross-platform Microsoft browser? Do you trust them enough to even try to use it? Let's put it this way. I only use Internet Explorer when I come across a site that says you must use Internet Explorer for the site. <laughs> That's the only reason that I that I if it there's no other obviously there's no other option than whatever, but like at work, you know, I have problems when I have Internet Explorer and I only use Internet Explorer when I come across a site that oh you must use Internet Explorer for the site. I don't know how Microsoft cuts deals with sites that require Internet Explorer, but that's that's yeah. the only reason that, that I have that kicking around is if I have to go to Microsoft itself to download something or whatever. Does so, that actually happen very often? It happens on one of the sites I have that I oh. have to go to regularly. It says you must use Internet Explorer. That's terrible. Yeah. Um, now, if I'm on my Mac, there is no Internet Explorer for Mac, right? No. So I'd be out of luck on yeah. that site. So if there's a cross-platform one, then that would help that aspect out of having an option for, for those sites. But I don't know. I Honestly, it comes down to personal preference for me. I'm just... I'm, that's what I'm used to. I'm sure if someone, you know, switched without me knowing, then I don't know. I guess it, if, it, mm. if it had the same functionality as Chrome, then I'd probably be fine. Yeah. But if it was like fast and lightweight and yeah. or simple enough interface. Yeah. The the problem with Internet Explorer that they got themselves into is that they made some bad coding decisions early on. Or maybe they just there was a, there were bad coding decisions made and Microsoft ended up going with them. Mm -hmm. But in either case, what you end up with is there are so many websites, like every big website now has to say like has to have this code built into the browser. I don't know if you've ever looked at source code for any website, but almost all of them have this stuff that's in brackets that isn't used by modern browsers. That it, like it's basically code that says, if Internet Explorer 6, 7, or even 8 sometimes now, use this other stuff because you're not going like, to get this experience. Like 6 is a big thing, and six, Internet Explorer 6 is going down a lot because that was the one that if you got Windows XP and never updated it, you were, you were on Internet Explorer 6. And now that the support for Internet Explorer 6 or Windows, and Windows XP in general is out, they, they don't have to support it anymore. And so I find a lot in modern websites, like in, even in something like Gmail, if you try to use Internet Explorer, even a newish version, they're going to be like, well, you should probably use Chrome because we literally can't give you the full experience on yeah. this terrible old web browser. It'd be really interesting to see if 
because now uh, Chrome used to use a, a rendering engine called WebKit. They've now changed to their own fork of WebKit called Blink. But Safari and Opera both use WebKit. So they're all on very similar technologies. And Google moving to their, their sort of their own is because they're trying to push the web even for faster, further, or more quickly than WebKit would like, mm -hmm. the, the people in charge of WebKit. But from my understanding, they're all adding this, sort of the same kinds of core technologies. The only thing that Blink is doing is sort of forging ahead even faster. Um, but so if if you saw um, if I saw a web browser from Microsoft based on WebKit, I would certainly be intrigued in the least to check it out. Yeah. Did you ever do the was it the Bing challenge or whatever? Uh, yeah, I did it a yeah. while back. How did it turn out for you? Do you remember at all? I think I think it ended up. Because the, the whole thing that they were saying is, like, we've tested a bunch of examples. You'd yeah. th they wouldn't put out that challenge unless they were confident that people would be like, wow, Bing is way better. But every or, time or at least, or at least searching, as good. Right. Every time I tried searching, like, Google was way better, and I was like, I don't even see the result I want in Bing. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was a couple of years ago, I, at least a couple of years ago. But, yeah, that was my experience. I found yeah. Google was better for me. Yeah. Like, I think, I can't remember. I think mine was marginally more in favor of Google. But there were a couple big ones that I that I picked. Okay. Um but I think like it's it's obviously not a scientific like study because Obviously. you're like for someone who's already a Google fan, they're, they're going to look for the Google one. Like yeah. even subconsciously, right? Yeah. But if if you had a focus group that just said, "Oh, which one do you prefer?" and you didn't know it was Google versus Microsoft, you didn't know any background behind it, which one do you prefer? I'd be interested to see the results of that, yeah. But but coming from someone who's just used to Google, I don't like. It's not that I'm against Bing. It's just I just habitually use Google, and right. like I don't. Know. I'm I'm okay admitting that I just favor Google just yeah. because I'm used to it and I like them. It's... I I actually and I'm I know I have an unpopular opinion in in this case, but I like having my web search history tracked. In my account, like I, I wouldn't, I don't say I wouldn't say I have a specific problem with the government looking at it. Yeah. But I like having a record of everything I searched for, so I go back and be yeah. like, oh yeah, that's what I was looking for on that day and whatever. I, yeah. I really like that feature. Yeah. Well, and even between home and work. Yeah. I'll, I'll start typing something in my work one that I was want, trying to remember what I searched for, and it's right there. I'm yeah. like, oh, there it is. Like, yes. that's awesome. Like. <laughs> The way it all works together is really fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it sounds like we both would be at least interested to try it out, but mm -hmm. switching is probably pretty unlikely at this point. Yeah. Well, I think what it would be targeting is, it, I, it, they're saying it was targeted for Windows 10 release. What they'd be going for is getting people who buy, get Windows 10, don't know anything about what a web browser is, they would just click on the thing that looks like the Internet and it would be different than Internet Explorer, but they wouldn't be like, oh, this is the new thing that they introduced. It's like it's for people that don't have exposure to web browsers. Yeah. And it is it is good from a security standpoint, it's good from a safety and speed standpoint. It's, I mean it's it's only positive that Microsoft is hopefully stepping up their browser game. 
Yeah. Yeah. The uh, I mean, what are they on Internet Explorer 11 by now? It's not bad anymore. It's not nearly as bad compared to everything else as it used to be. But it has yeah. all this like stuff, cruft built up, like in the settings, in the way it has to support old websites. They have that compatibility mode. It's just, it's not a good, it's not a good system because it has years and years of stuff, the old stuff that it has to support, because there are still customers using those older versions. Whereas mm-hmm. all the modern web browsers now, Opera, Firefox, Safari, Chrome, they all automatically update. There's no, you'd have to try really hard if you wanted to stop it updating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's great. Uh, so let's close out here. You have one more little piece of news on the OnePlus, which is just a fantastic new Android phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a big a big kerfuffle about uh, Sanj Mod saying that they're not going to partner with OnePlus anymore, yep. um, that they're going with a Chinese... another Chinese manufacturer. I can't remember which one. A Chinese um, manufacturer or a Chinese developing group? Just another hardware company. They, they weren't okay. going to partner with OnePlus anymore and allow them to, to sell their... Oh, their no. It was, sorry. Yeah, you're, I was confused by your wording, but... Um, yeah, there's a different hardware company that partnered with Cyanogen. Yeah. Yeah, in India. Right, That's yeah. It was. yeah. Um, so they weren't going to allow the OnePlus to be sold with the Cyanogen mod yeah. operating system on it. Um, and then OnePlus was like, oh, what the heck? Like, we were kind of relying on you to sell our phone because that's why people were buying the OnePlus. Or a lot of big, a big reason why a lot of people were is because it came with the, the I guess, to compare it to Apple is like a jailbroken version yeah. of Android, kind of. It's, the, um, it's not a terrible it, it had more root. It had more root yeah. permissions yeah. than Android. Um, I don't know if it came with full root access right out of the box, but you could do a lot more with it. Yeah. Was that? It has a switch to turn on root. Yeah. uh, Um, Yeah. Like like the Google Play edition of the Nexus devices do, but which a lot of Samsung and stuff don't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um. So, but it gave a lot more customization options than even stock Android gives. Um, Just a different experience if that's what you're looking for. Um. And so OnePlus decided or kind of was almost forced to develop yeah. their own version of Android. They could have uh, licensed out the stock Android or at least some sort of more stock Android than than what they'd otherwise have. But they came up with their own operating system similar to the, uh, the Tizen-type yeah. operating system. Um, not similar in a functionality sense, but just how it's a forked, what's called a forked version, where they, they take the kind of foundation and then customize it to suit their own their own device and add a functionality that they'd like. Um, so anyway, they, they announced that they developed their own, they're back in the game, and they're going to release it on whatever future device they, they have in store. Um, and I guess they're hoping that it can still maintain the the momentum they got with the Sinojamod partnership. Um, but they seem to at least have recognition now within, you know, tech people. Um, yeah. I'm sure just the average person still won't know what a OnePlus is, but at least... I have a couple... My friends, two of my friends that have had Nexus devices, 
now have they they got them for Christmas. They got yeah. OnePluses and they're extremely happy with them. Who's just two? I thought there was just one. Uh, well, Keegan got one yeah. for sure, and Julia's brother got one as well. Oh, okay. Um, but did, how did they hear about it? They're in, plugged into the tech world. I think I might okay. have told Keegan about it a long right. time ago. Or no, I yeah, on the the day Black Friday was it that yeah. you were able to get it, get it without <laughs> waiting in line, uh, or waiting for a code. I told him about it, and then uh, right. yeah, he got it for Christmas. He still heard about it from yeah. you though. I assume. I don't think you've heard about it before. Right. Yeah. But I guess, anyway, the point point is that they, now that they don't have the Cyanogen Mod partnership, they, they're having to rely a bit more on their own um, laurels versus yeah. selling the phone because of the operating system. So I guess we'll see what they come up with and if it can hold hold any sort of momentum. If Hopefully it's not a super kind of standout-y one like Samsung overlays are, but... Yeah. I want to just, as a clerical note, you mentioned a couple minutes ago that Tizen... I think you mentioned that Tizen is an Android fork. Well, it's, it's, it's their Android Wear... Yes, it's, an, it's a, it's a Wear type. No, it's a, it's a full-fledged operating system. Like, Samsung is moving from Android to Tizen. Like, it's not related to Android at all. It's completely open source. Oh, okay. Uh, I say it's based on Linux kernel. Oh, okay. Like, it's not... Android at all. It's not okay. related. That's, but it is. It's a platform that uh, will work on smartphones, will work on smart watches. Mm-hmm. Will work on, there was news this week that it's coming out. There's Tizen for TVs. Like mm-hmm. Samsung TVs are going to have Tizen as the operating system. Yeah. Which is weird in itself, but yeah. it's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, it's... I'm in favor of that, though, for sure. Similar yeah. to the Android TV experience that they're... They're gonna start making more available now. Yeah. Um, because right now I have an LG smart TV, um, and the LG one's not bad. I, I'm okay with the UI; it has good apps and good functionality. Um, but it'd be nice to have a more consistent Android-based experience, or just consistent experience, depending on whether it's Android or Tizen or whatever, kind of across all your devices. And I guess that's the appeal of the potential Android TV that is gonna be similar. The transition isn't going to be as... Even from Chromecast, like Chromecast is kind of its own. It doesn't really have a UI per se. You just right. stream exactly. to it, right? Just like the Apple Watch doesn't really have a UI, it's, it projects apps from the phone. Yeah. <clears throat> Other than the core apps, obviously. Yeah. <sighs> All right, well, I think that's it for the show today. Yeah. I'm pretty excited about this 2015 uh, starting fresh... We're almost at a year of future chats. Mm-hmm. A few weeks away. Yeah. We'll have to have a party or something. Yes. <laughs> a cross-country party. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, I'll say you can find us. We, we would really like... We've got one review on iTunes. Um, one of the easiest ways to support this show is just leaving a... didn't have to leave a review, just rate on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio... Um, you can find us on Twitter. We're at Future Chats. We've I just finished moving the website to the, the core domain of futurechat.me, so I think it's a lot easier to find now than it was before. It was a little bit clunky using webcast.futurechat.me, but uh, it feels like home now. It feels like futurechat.me. It's a good home. Uh, 
I also want to mention that we are doing an end-of-year survey for 2014. You can uh, head to unwindmedia.com, which is the, the parent site for Future Chat, and there's a link to the survey there. Uh, at the top of the page, you can go to bit.ly slash unwindsurvey. We'd just like to get a video from your feedback about uh, about this show, what you like about it, what you don't like, if there's something you'd like to see. Um, yeah, so we'd really appreciate if you take a couple minutes. It literally only takes a couple minutes if you want it to, or even 30 seconds if you're fast. Um, that would benefit me personally a lot, and it would help me out. Uh, where can people find you on the internet, Mike? Other uh, than here, find me at uh, ma underscore yyc on Twitter, or just looking up on Google Plus. Um, I don't know, Facebook, That's LinkedIn, wherever. Just all the places. If you want to find me, you'll find me. <laughs> cool. All right. Yeah, I'm. <clears throat> on most platforms, I'm at Robitrell. Uh, you can find me there, and uh, I think that's it for the week. Sounds good to me. All right, we'll see you next week with more science and tech from Future Chats. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Stay in See ya.